Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. These studies are building as continuums, one upon the, one upon the other. And so you mustn't be uh, left uh, unfutile in your understanding when it comes to certain principles. So we're building sequentially. I want to speak today predominantly, it will take an hour or so, about the issue of giving gracefully. Giving gracefully and giving graciously. Okay, this is the fourth part of the series in kingdom economics that, do, that we are doing. But we're speaking about financial issues. But the financial issues we are referencing, we are not speaking about kingdom economics abstractly or apart from the grace of God. We entitled this the grace of God and kingdom economics. In my view, you will never bring accuracy to your finances until you fully understand the grace of God. I believe that giving and financial stewardship, even work, the fact that you work for an income and that you're managing money, even things like expenditure, budgets, and planning are all expressions and outcomes of the grace of God. And we're going to need bountiful grace. Um, we, we, we spoke variously about various things up to this point. And on Wednesday, we analyzed the giving of the widow who gave two mites and how that, if this is the offering, Scripture says Jesus came and he sat against the offering and he observed how they put in. That tells me he's very concerned about financial issues. And the sitting denotes judgment, not for punitive. It's not punitive. It's judgment for refinement, judgment for accuracy and fine-tunement. Okay? And so if your world, if your financial world is not completely reformed, you don't have a complete reformation. God wants accuracy even to your finances. Throughout the series, I will demonstrate to you, it's not money per se that we are talking about. A host of other issues will unearth from this process. You will see, I, I keep saying when we speak about a specific series and we title it, don't get bound up into the title and think we're only speaking finances. I will demonstrate to you from the scripture your entire life has much to do with finances and your spiritual destiny could very well be determined on your attitude towards money. I will prove to you from the scripture several uh, individuals in the Bible, they failed and aborted huge spiritual destiny, not because they weren't anointed, not because they were not, not credible and sincere people but because of an inaccuracy relative to finances. Some actually died in the process like Ananias and Sapphira. Others hung themselves like Judas. Right? Others like Gehazi were, were taken off the mainstream. There was Elijah, who was the father of Elisha, and Gehazi was his servant. But instead of Elisha, who experienced twofold anointing from Elijah, Gehazi should have had fourfold, but Gehazi is taken off the scene Ideally positioned for great grace reception, but taken off the seed because of an inaccurate, undoubt issue referable to, to finances. Others offered to God, and God regarded their gifts and their offering. And God catapulted them with great momentum into His purpose and His destiny. The examples are too numerous to mention, but I will mention those when we do the series. I'll take a case study of certain persons and show you how they viewed and dealt financially brought a great deal of spiritual blessing to them in other areas of their life, not only reference to finances. It seems like God uses finances as a yardstick. It seems though He tests your heart by testing your money. A lot of people say, Lord, I'll give you my heart, but not my money. I can surrender my life, but not my wallet. Do introspection on all of my issues, but not my bank account. That domain is mine. And Jesus said this, you cannot serve two masters. You either hate the one. Let's just put it up on the board. That's Matthew 6, 24. 
Remember, listen carefully. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the closest thing that Jesus ever came to in his teachings that delineates how kingdom citizens should function. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 I call the constitution of the kingdom of God. If ever you want a behavioral pattern, it starts off with the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And don't stop after the Beatitudes. Read, write down salt, light. He talks about a whole lot of things. Prayer, giving, fasting, right? And uh, in Matthew 7, a long discourse. Bible says before that starts in Matthew 5, he went up into the mount and he sat with his disciples and he taught them saying. So picture that this is like an apostolic school of ministry on a mountain. He's sitting and he's in session. He's teaching his disciples and one of the things he said to them was this. This is not to Pharisees. It's not to unsaved people. This is not to the irreligious. These are to his own. And to his own, to you and I, who is his own, he would say to us, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Put the new King James, or the King James. You cannot serve God and mammon. The opposite to God is not the devil. The opposite to God is mammon. The devil is not a problem to God. The devil should not be a problem to you because he has been dealt with. Not so? Amen? He has been dealt with. The only thing in Jesus' mind that could rival the place of God in the life of his disciples is their attitude to money. It's the only thing that he found potentially could displace the priority of God in, in their lives was their view in reference to finances. Mammonos is the Greek word for mammon. And it's not money per se. It's an evil principality that controls men through the medium of money. Right? Money is not evil. First Timothy says the love of money is the root of all evil. Repeat after me. The love of money is the root of all evil. Everyone say all evil. Now think about that. What the scripture is saying is every expression of evil, every, all means all. Every expression of evil could be linked in some way to a love for money. Right? At the bedrock of it is a wrong approach to money and a wrong approach to wealth. Now Jesus is setting forth here, watch, the sheer impossibility of serving two masters. He called God a master. And he called Mammon a master. They are both masters. God is a master. Mammon is a master. Ask your neighbor, who is your master? You've got to make up your mind once and for all. Am I going to live life in life being subservient to the God of money, the God of Mammon, through my incorrect devotion to it? Or will I demonstrate by how I use my finances that God is truly my curios, my Lord? The Greek word, Lord, Master, Curios. He's the one that has con complete mastery and control over all my life. The, this verse is telling us you cannot do this. You can't straddle two positions. There's mammon and there's God. He says, no one, right? You might have the capacity to do many things. And most things that are impossible to others might be possible to you. But this verse, this verse says, there's one thing that is literally impossible. No man can do both. No man can serve two masters. And notice what he says. Hate the one and love the other. And then another comparison. Loyal to the one and despise the other. Take this one here. You hate the one and you despise the other. In other words, the one you hate reveals the one you love. It is said of Jesus, listen carefully, in the book of Hebrews, that he hated iniquity or lawlessness, but he loved righteousness. If you don't hate iniquity, you will never love righteousness. Repeat after me. I hate pornography. Say it again. I hate pornography. Say it again. I hate lies. I hate misrepresentation. I hate adultery. 
Say, I hate fornication. What are you doing? It says Jesus hated iniquity. If you don't adopt a position in your heart towards sin, sin will control you. But if you say to that thing, you lie, you fornication, you adultery, uh, you backbiting, you unforgiveness, I hate you. Come on, say it. I hate sin. If you don't hate sin, you'll never love righteousness. Do you know what the Bible says? Daniel determined in his heart not to defile himself with the king's delicacies. Yeah? Right? And when they presented the delicacies to him, he could easily resist it. Why? The resolve was already in the heart. If you don't resolve in the heart, it will swallow you up. Now, now say with me. Therefore, say therefore. therefore. I hate mammon. Say it again. I hate mammon. I'm saying this because mammon is a power. The Bible in Ephesians 6 says we wrestle not against principal, uh, flesh and blood, but we, uh, powers and principality, spiritual wickedness in, in high places. There's Satan. Powers, principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places, rulers of the darkness of this age. It's like a hierarchy, like in, a, in an army, you have a hierarchy of various authoritarian figures in rank. The highest one being Satan with various under him. I think Mammon is a principality just below Satan working for him. It's not a, like a, it's not a, a, a normal runaround demon. It's not your lighty demon. This is a host. This is a, he's a principality. The love of money is not the root. Money is not the root of all evil there. Love of money is the root. I believe mammon, mammonos in the Greek, his task is to enslave men through their attitudes toward money. And Jesus picked this up in his disciples. He says, hey guys, don't straddle two positions anymore. Make up your mind. The one you hate will reveal the one you love. The one that you despise, yes, it here, the one that you despise will reveal the one to whom you are loyal. Now, Many people find it difficult to break out of being bound by, for example, not honoring God with first fruits, tithes, and offerings. Giving financially is one of the most powerful ways you prove who your master is. Because the world system would want you to get all you can and can all you get and stock it up. The, the kingdom system says, Give to God as a demonstration on where your dependence lies. Give to God as a demonstration on who your master is. And I'll talk more to that at a later time. What I really want to teach today is the powerful link between money and grace. What I'm saying is, remember when you got saved? Yeah? Could you do anything in your power to get saved? Could your good work save you? Yes or no? Come on, talk to me. No? Yeah, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says the following, For by what are you saved? For by grace. Now, if, you, if you've had a struggle with obeying God financially, I declare to you that struggle is going to be over after this service. You have not come into this room to stay the way you entered here. Yeah? God's word is going to transform you. God's word is going to empower you. Grace is going to come to you that will, will cause you to obey God's level of principles that He expects financially. Yeah? So, uh, this verse says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Now, just stop here. Based on that verse, what saved me? It says, by grace through faith. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word. So you were in a meeting one day and you heard the gospel message. The word went out. What built up in your heart? Faith to respond, right? And then let's say most of us came by an altar call. We lifted our hands. We came. We said the sinner's prayer and we surrendered our hearts to the Lord. Was there anything good that you could have done by your own works to earn that? Nothing? It's, this verse is very clear. It says, by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. And, and it says in verse 9, not as a result of works. Why? Why? 
Because God doesn't want anybody boasting that it was because on their merit they got saved. Right? Grace, this saving grace, is that unmerited favor of God that He gives to men to usher them into the kingdom. But God did require something of you for you to get saved. He did require that you must believe. Not so? That you must repent of your sin. That you said sorry and that you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior. You are, listen carefully to me, you are able to do those things by faith. By faith, it says by grace through faith. Please repeat this after me. By grace through faith. Right? So you were sitting there, all of your good works are like filthy rags, nothing you could do to earn this, this spiritual result. You heard the word, faith, wow, he loved me. You know what, I love the scripture that says, even when we were yet dead in trespass and sin, Christ died for us. Did God wait for you to believe before he died? So did he die without, did he die looking to you to merit what he could do for you? No, he died even when you were dead in trespass and sin. Tell your neighbor he did not wait for you to believe. Having died, watch, I believe in his foreknowledge, knowing all things, he knew that in time you would choose him. Because in time, at some point, you would hear the gospel message and based upon what you heard, faith would arise and you would come in by the free gift of his grace. Right? Now, please, you're going to track with me. This can be very uh, uh, involved, this particular sermon. So, yes, we're all saved by grace through faith. Could do nothing to earn it. Yes, by grace you came in. Having come in, saved into the kingdom, the scripture says now you must grow in grace. Not so? And I suggested to you throughout this grace series, your growth in grace is an adoption of certain specific dispositions that you must master in your life in order to grow in it. Having come into it, you must grow in it. In other words, you have not experienced the fullness of the thing. You were just introduced to it in salvation. So Peter would say, grow in grace. Everyone say, grow in grace. And there I shared with you about 15 principles, things you can do to grow in grace. It's all on the CD there. One thing, for example, it says God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. So saved, what I need to ensure is a disposition of humility, right? Purity of heart, connection to spiritual fathering, etc. And we went through a host of things. So, watch. If after I am saved, I am to adopt a specific disposition, either in mentality or in behavior, to grow in grace and recruit more grace unto myself, I must have this understanding. The position I adopt requires my cooperation, but it will always be as a result of the enablement of the Lord, even in the first place. Now, Romans 2 verse 4 says this, that even when you said, Lord, I repent, and you came up, did you know, you can't say, yeah, well done. Oh, Bruce, you repented. Well done. You responded by faith to the gospel message. You came up. No. What caused you to repent? This verse says, don't you think lightly of what? The, the riches of his kindness and what? And tolerance and what? Knowing what? Knowing the kindness of God led you to repentance. Did you know that the fact that you can repent, you can't even say, Woo, hallelujah, at least I responded, I am saved. The others didn't believe. They went away from the message unchanged. Did you know that when you came up, you can't even say, because of me, yes, I responded favorably. It's all at every stage it's God. Jesus said, no man can come to the Father or to me except the Father draws him. Do you know that the, your salvation is actually the drawing of the Lord? Listen to me where I'm going. Well, you, you may ask, Randolph, what on earth has this got to do with money? <laughs> Listen, when you got saved, you got saved by grace. In the kingdom, you are expected to grow in grace by adopting certain positions attitudinally or in terms of your behavior. Like as when you said to the Lord, I believe it could even not even at that stage be reckoned to you, but to the drawing of the Lord. That doesn't take away your personal responsibility, though. 
but at every stage it's God. Now in salvation, if I say be humble or be pure, every expression of obedience that causes you to grow in grace now will itself be as a result of the grace of God. I am humble not because I mean, I'm disposed to it. I'm humble because if I hear the word on humility, I incline my heart towards it. And the moment I incline my heart towards it, grace kicks in to aid me. So having, being humble, I still can't even say it was my doing. It's all as a result of the grace of God. At every single stage, it's grace. Tell your neighbor, at every single stage, it's grace. Now, go back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, straight after saying this, it says, We are whose workmanship? Uh, tell your neighbor you are a construction site. <laughs> God is working on you. God is doing some stuff on you. And whose workmanship are you? God's, right? It says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Come on, talk to me. For? For good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand, that's before I was even born. God knew Randolph Barnwell would start a church. And it would be located in Durban North. Do you know this work was ordained beforehand? But I'm walking in it now. I'm doing stuff for the Lord simply because it's not me. This was decided by God, for God, by His enablement before I was born. All I did, I recognized it, positioned myself ideally, and I do it not because, yeah, Randolph, well done. No, it's because God put grace in store sufficient enough to aid me in the process. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, keep this one on the board. I want to quote 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He says, I'm unworthy to become an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church. Remember, he was a killer of Christians before he was an apostle of God. And then he says, uh, but I am what I am by the grace. Repeat after me. I am what I am by the grace of God. And then he makes this lovely statement. He says, I work, yet not I. Come on, tell someone, I work, yet not I. So, now, does grace make you lazy? No. He still says, I work. But even when I work, it cannot be credited to me. Woo, well done, Marion. When you are due, when Marion does the will of God and enters into works, not to, watch, not to earn salvation, works as a result of salvation. She is God's workmanship. Just go back to this, watch. I'm all over the place today, right? We are God's, what? Workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good. Can your good works earn salvation? No, the previous verse just told us. But having come in, you work as a result of the grace reception. And the grace that saved you is the same grace that's now going to empower you to do every good work that God called you to do. Yeah? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Watch. Prepared for what? Prepared for? Uh, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Now, good works is stuff you do in obedience to the command of the Lord once saved. And you're not doing it to earn points with God. You're doing it as an outcome of the reception of His grace. So then, Anything I do cannot be credited to me. But, you know, this, 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 this doctrine is so careful in how you word it. Because you know how a lot of people will interpret this? Woo, thank God it's all God, not me. Hallelujah. Now I can just chill, can coast along. No. When Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God, and his grave to me did not prove in vain. He says, I work, yet not I, but the grace. Did he say, I don't work? No, he said, I? Grace doesn't make you lazy. In fact, if you know grace, grace will cause you to work far more than your natural ability 
afford you to. So at the end of the day, it could, it could be said of you, it's not you, it's grace. It's not you, it's, it's the grace of God. Quickly, Philippians 2.12. I want to get back to where we should be, but I want to get this into your spirit quickly. Come on, say with me, it's all grace. But grace does require your cooperation. So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, watch. Work out your own salvation with what? So who must work your salvation out with fear and trembling? You. Now tell your neighbor, you work your own salvation out. First Timothy says, test yourself, examine yourself, whether you actually are in the faith. You've got to know for sure, for sure, that I am in. And I've got to treat my salvation very carefully. I mustn't neglect so great a salvation. Work it out, but the next verse seems to contradict this. After saying, work it out, verse 13, what does it say? For it's God who is working in you. In other words, it's God who is working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In other words, when I work things out, I don't work it out in my own perspiration, in my own strength. God's work in me doesn't require my laziness. I cooperate but I realize if I am diligent, if I am focused, I start to harness an aid, a divine aid. God pours grace. And as I give due diligence to working my salvation out, it's really God who's working in and through me. Tell your neighbor, so it's not really up to you. It's about the power you're able to harness. Tell someone, it's about the grace you're able to access. A lot of people say this thing is too hard. These commandments are too hard. How can I in my own strength do it? Well, you, that's exactly your problem. You are trying too hard. If you tap into uh, the work and the grace enablement that God gives, you too can say like, Paul, it's me working, but it's not really me working. I'm cooperating with what the power that the grace of God affords in my life. Right? It's me working, but it's not really me working. There's a lovely scripture. Um, I'm trying to find it where it says, by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for, for all men. How did he die? How did Jesus die? On the cross. Do you know why he was able to die on the cross like that? It says in Hebrews that he tasted death by the grace of God. 2.9. Oh, it's there, right? Yes, it's here. We see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for, for everyone. Now, repeat after me, Jesus tasted death. The word by there in the Hebrew means fueled by or empowered by the grace of God. Remember what he said in the garden? Lord, it was hard for him to go through with the cross. Remember? And what did he pray? He said, Lord, not see, take this cup of suffering away from me. But what did he pray? Not my will, but your will be done. There was, there was a weakness within Jesus based upon the degree of suffering attendant with the cross. Where for a moment he said, Lord, I know I came to do this. But if it is possible, if there's some small possibility in my flesh, I can't manage what you want from me is going to take everything. I can't bear this. Too much for me. Too much. Too mu How many people feel like that? Too much. In my flesh, I can't manage. Too much. And he actually suggested, if it's possible. He said, if it's possible, take the cup of suffering away. But you know what the Bible says? But he said, and I like this, nevertheless, not what I want, not my will, but... Your will be. You know, the moment he said that, I believe grace, God says, wow, my son. And I, I want to I carve this into your mind. If you just incline yourself to the will, God gives grace to do it so that when having done it, it could never be said, you did it. 
You just cooperated with what grace allowed you to do. The Son of God Himself went through the cross by the grace of God given to Him to be able to do it. Yeah? Now, do you think you and I will be any differently? Come on, talk to me. No, no, no. Tell you about what you need is more grace. What you need is more grace. You know, we all got our issues, right? Tell you about you too. <laughs> right? We all got something. Trust, trusting God to overcome, work through. Um, I can't give details, but there was a serious relational issue that I've been praying for for months. And I want to reconcile with the person. And uh, the past four or five days, it's, I'm not lying, before God, for the past few months, whenever I pray, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name and I worship God. And the very first thing I'm with, first thing is this issue before the Lord. First issue before the Lord. During the fast now, I took authority and said, God, I decree a change in the heart of the person. Now, that, that bears heavily on my heart. Right? Bears heavily on my heart. Why? Because we are loving, we are reconciliatory. When I was preparing this, thinking about these things, God said to me, you're trying too hard. <laughs> you are trying too hard. You're doing all that you can in your own strength. And the Lord said to me, leave it up to me now. You've done what I required you to do. You're compliant. So allow space for grace to work. Come on, tell someone. That's a nice phrase. Tell someone, allow space for grace now to work. You're trying too hard. Trying to fix people that you have no, no right to fix. Only God can fix someone. Let me tell you. Yeah? If you submit, you know, I really want to encourage you. Pray and in prayer, harness the power of grace. Do you know what Jesus said? It says in Hebrews 5 about the Lord. Hebrews 5, 7, I think. How did Jesus pray? The Bible says he, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers. Watch. How did he pray? He offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying. What kind of prayer is that? How do you pray? We treat prayer like it's an optional uh, I, I can leave the events of my life to just happen. Prayer. When you pray, what prayer does is, prayer says, no, I'm not going to leave my child's destiny to chance. I'm not leaving my wife's destiny to chance. I'm not leaving my destiny to chance. I will secure destiny in prayer. I'll pray about the future. Last night I prayed for Matthew. Call him by name. Call his wife, his future wife to be. I call, I speak to their kids. What am I doing? I'm not going to let perchance and circumstance decide these things. When I'm a king, I'm a son of God, and in prayer I can offer loud crying. And what the Bible says, he, he offered prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one that was able to save him, his father, from death. And he was heard because of his piety or his devotion. Tell your neighbor, you, will be, you too will be heard. Who saved Jesus? His father. <laughs> Excuse me. And he, he, he prayed with loud crying and tears. And when he did that, not my will, but your will be done. I believe the grace, he tasted death by the grace. What is death for him? Obedience. Say obedience. He became obedient. What does Ephesians 2 say? He became obedient unto death. So when it says he tasted death, I interpret that to be he tasted obedience. You are struggling to obey God financially because you are counting the rands and cents as a, rat, as a natural man. And you're working the sums out and you're looking at natural things and you're saying, I can't obey this. I can't. Impossible. I am saying, firstly, you are trying in your own strength. And all I'm saying to you, at least incline your heart obediently to the Lord and watch how God gives grace that will propel you to a place of absolute obedience. And even when you do obey, it could never ever be said of you, Ooh, well done, Jules, you are faithful financially. Then you will turn around and say, hey, bro, left to me. <laughs> if I had my way, this is not going to happen. This is only happening because I've permitted and cooperated with the grace of God to be fueled within me. 
Again, tell your neighbor, leave some space for grace. Sure. Leave some space for grace. Now, listen very carefully. I'm trying to summarize about 25 sessions on grace. Listen. Tell your neighbor, listen. What is grace? Listen carefully. Grace is the compositional makeup of God as a spirit being. Grace is the constituent element of spirit. God is a spirit. Cannot be seen with the naked eye. Spirit is invisible. But the invisibility of spirit doesn't mean it's insubstantive. Spirit has substance or weight. There's a substance to water. There's a compositional makeup to water. To water. It's called H2O. Two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen. You can analyze the content and come to that conclusion. When you analyze God, you say, what is in this, the makeup of His being as spirit? The answer is His grace. Grace is the substance by which God is comprised. And we prove this variously through various portions of Scripture, which I don't have the time to go through. But one that I really like is John 1. It says, of his fullness. Everyone say fullness. If something is full and you pour it out, the thing comes out, right? So John 1 says, of his fullness, what do we receive? Grace upon grace. So grace is the substance of God's makeup and nature as a spirit being. Therefore, when it says, for by grace are you saved through faith. That doesn't just mean, yes, unmerited favor. What actually happened? You said, God, I'm sorry, I repent of my sins, please forgive me. According to Ezekiel 36, 36, you know what the Bible says, what happened there? God says, I will take my spirit and put it into your spirit. There was grace transfer at the point of salvation. You received your initial download payment of the nature of God in your being. And his spirit regenerated your spirit and became one with your spirit. The initial download and deposit of that grace must not stop, but it must grow ever progressively with, with time. Okay? Now, is God then full of grace? Come on, talk to me. Yes? Is God full of grace? Are you full of grace? Yes, you should be. Huh? Now, listen carefully. Is God a giver? Yes. God gave His only Son, I believe, as the first powerful expression of how a gracious God He is. For God so loved the world that He gave. What gives? Grace. Ask him, but what gives? I know we use that in a specific context. What gives? Auntie is grace. Grace gives. Grace that doesn't give is not grace at all. The nature of grace is to impart. Please, you, better, you, you must now concentrate. We're getting to where I really want to go. That was all a foundation for this. He tasted obedience. He tasted death, not by his own efforts, but inclined himself to it. And God, his Father, imbued him with grace such that he walked obediently through the cross by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. I work, yet not I. It's the grace of God working in me. God's grace is a giving grace. Grace, in its quintessential characteristic, seeks to give out from itself to the other. With the idea of that the other being its primary beneficiary. So if, yes, God, God gives out of His grace to Adam. Remember the first man? Made him from the dust of the ground. Remember? Dust of the ground. And what happened? Formed him from the dust of the ground. And the Bible says, and God breathed into Adam what? You know the word breath there is ruach, spirit. So God took of his essence in his own being and put the stuff into Adam. God's grace does not have a problem giving out from himself as a gracious expression of what he wants to see in the other of himself. So that the other will have the same nature as himself. When you give financially, you give from that, with that mindset. I give. And notice, is God diminished by the quantum of grace he gave? No. You must please understand this. In the realm of grace, grace is never diminished by what grace gives. 
when God gave spirit out from his being a spirit to men, he's not lessened by the quantum of spirit that he, he gave out. Grace gives. And when you give from the position of grace, the, ma- the mind of the man or woman that gives gracefully from the position of grace does not reckon themselves to be lesser by the amount given because the, the, it was given from the platform of the, of the grace of God. So I keep referencing this. A boy had five loaves and two fish, remember? And remember he gave via Andrew to the Lord who multiplied the fish and the loaves and 5,000 were fed. Remember? Not so? Yeah. Was the boy placed at a disadvantage by what he gave? Yeah? Come on, talk to me. What, did he go hungry that day? No. I think he had more than five loaves and two fish to eat, by the way, if I know what young boys are capable of. Yeah? Grace, you see why I say grace gave is because five is representative of grace. Five loaves. Loaves are representative of the word of God and the grace is vested in the, in the word of God. So whenever you give your tithes, your first fruits, and your offerings, listen to me very carefully whenever you give your tithes, your first fruits, your offerings, or almsgiving to help the poor, any expression of giving, tell yourself, this is how you must think. Hey, God, let me give you a testimony quickly. I went to have a haircut, as you can see. Then I was coming out, and I met Sister Giles. Sister Giles is an old sister from the Stemmies of God. And uh, I saw her from a distance, and back then when I was, Renee and I were one year married, and we were house church leaders for that area where we lived. And amazingly, we had all the old people in our house church. Sister Varko, Sister Varko, late Sister Varko, Sister Giles. But I remember Gwagant Myra, white Mazda, my first car those years. Small white Mazda, and I go around picking up all these old ladies, and two or three trips to get to the house, and we'd have this. And Sister Giles was one of the most faithful plugged in ladies, right? And the Lord says to me, empty your wallet, as I'm walking to her. But I was so happy to see her, and she, we saw her. Her eyes lit up, we hugged, we chatted. And the Lord said to me, empty your wallet. I'm saying, I'm not giving as a natural man. I will not be diminished by the quantum I give. Lord, it's hard to obey, but it's not me. I will incline myself by reaching out into my pocket to get my wallet out. At least Jesus said, not my will. So I said, my will versus your will, I will incline, I will start the process. And I pulled it out, and I, I, I blessed her with the money, etc. She was overwhelmed, because I could see by the little package she had, it was about 20 rand worth of goods in there, and she was on her way home. Right? And I won't tell you the amount, but I blessed her with a significant amount. I said, bless you. You know, I, I want to encourage you. You see, if I counted the rands and cents, if I, if I, if I measure as a man, if I think like a natural man, I'm not going to obey God in any matter. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Do you know what? The sooner you release seed, the sooner you're positioned to harvest. Yeah, right. There's no reception of harvest without the release of a seed. Yeah. Right? The sooner you sow, the sooner you reap. The more you sow, the more you reap. That's just that's the way the economy of the Lord works. But even your sowing must be a reflection of the grace of God that you have. That you have received. Okay? So, grace knows how to give. And that boy gave two fish and five loaves. And he gives personally to bring benefit to a corporate expression. A corporate need that was within their context at the time. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to start to show you the link between grace and giving. Unfortunately, I will not finish today. You're going to have to come back on Wednesday night for the balance of this message. Right? I really want to get into it more on Wednesday. Today was largely preparatory in terms of a mindset. Please look at this. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you what? You know, sometimes we read verses in the Bible and we overlook the stuff, eh? What is, according to this verse, what was Paul's clear intention? What does he want to make known to the Corinthians? On who? 
on the churches of Macedonia. Who is he writing to? The Corinthian believers. Corinth was a wealthy, uh, successful city context. Macedonia was poor by comparison. right? But Paul says, I want you Corinthians to be aware of one thing. These guys have grace. You don't. I want to make you know the grace of God upon the Macedonians. And how is this grace demonstrated? You see, grace has got visible manifestations, visible signs, outcomes. Two outcomes are mentioned here in verse 2. Watch. In great ordeal of affliction, the abundance of joy. Just stop there. Did they suffer? Affliction means suffering, right? Great ordeal. But in suffering, what does this church have? Abundance of? Does that not defy the natural mind? If you, if you have grace, you can be going through the most terrible thing, the most terrible ordeal, but grace can keep you buoyant and joyful. Yeah? And, and people wonder, but why? I know your circumstance, but you're still so happy. Then you can say, it's not me, it's the grace of God in me. Tell your neighbor what you need is more grace. But what I'm interested in, interested in is the second part. It says, and their what poverty? Their, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Just put the New King James. Now there's poverty and there's deep poverty, right? Deep poverty abounded in the riches of their... The word liberality means what? What is to be liberal? A liberal giver is to be extravagant giver, lavish, generous. Now, please, I want to etch this in your mind. Repeat after me. Grace is generous. Say it again. Grace is generous. If you are a good word, a good student of the word, and you do word studies, you double-click on grace on your computer program, you'll come to Strong's Greek definition of New Testament words. New Testament, right? The word is charis, as I've said to you before, and it's, a, it's got a multi-layered meaning. One of the implications of charis that James Strong, one of the most reputed Greek scholars of our time, said, he said, charis, the grace of God, finds its most powerful expression in the generosity of the giver. That's not Randolph. That's a Greek scholar unraveling what the word grace means. He said, it finds its most powerful expression purely vested in the generosity of the giver. So he said, basically, is God gracious? Did God, hear what the Bible says, if God did not withhold, if God spared not his, his only son, but he gave him up for us all, how much more shall he not also with him freely give us, freely give us all things? Was the giving of Jesus a big deal to the earth? Did God give his best? He did give his best. Grace gives. Grace gives generously. Grace gives lavishly. But I want to find out, how can people, not just from poverty, how can people from deep poverty give liberally, generously, more than what a Corinthian wealthy context could do? How is that possible? How does Paul start this whole thing? Verse 1, please you must catch this. Verse 1, I want to make known to you what? He says, I have one agenda. I'm going to make known to you grace on a people. Grace on a people. When grace is on a people, they are suffering but they are joyful. And they're not just poor, they're deeply poor. But the extent of their giving far defies the context from which they give. The quality and character of their gifts, you would think, come from a wealthy context. Paul says, no, it's coming from deep poverty. And the only thing that elevated the capacity to give on that level was that these people have something that you Corinthians need. You Corinthians need something called the grace of God. Look at the next verse, quickly. Uh, verse 4. Uh, yeah, verse 3. I bear witness according to their 
Now, it's fine to give according to your ability. But how do you give beyond your ability? They gave beyond what they were able. Grace will cause you to give way beyond your financial capacity. The natural mind, after he's done the budget, says, I cannot afford to give. But grace says, I, grace, function in spirit, not in the flesh. I function in a realm that does not know diminishment. And with the mind of the spirit, I give. And my giving's prompted by grace. And it gets grace results. Read on, quickly. Imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gifts and fellowship of ministering to the saints. And not only as we hoped, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of the Lord. Before they gave financially, they gave their hearts to the Lord. Before they gave financially, they gave their hearts to the servants of the Lord. To giving here. In fact, there's three levels of giving in the Macedonians. They give themselves to the Lord. Then they give themselves to the Lord's representations, Paul. Right? You must be given to the Lord and your heart must be open and given to your spiritual leader. When those two things are in place, listen carefully. I think the capacity of grace at work in the Macedonians to give way beyond what present circumstances allowed was because of the degree to which these guys were given to the Lord. Do you know what the problem in the, in the church today is? We're trying to extract funds from people to give. But yet those people are not given in their hearts to the Lord first. No man who is thoroughly committed and given to the Lord and, Paul says, and to us and to the servants of the Lord, he, his, his, his money will be given as well as an expression of his devotion. And watch, I'm getting to a point. Verse 6. So Paul says, i got a son here called Titus. I urged Titus to do something. As he had begun, he would do what? He would complete what? Everyone say this grace. What grace? A grace that gives. Titus, I, Paul, can't go to these guys right now. I'm going to send you as my son. Right? Now, Titus apparently a year ago, if you read the history behind this, a year ago urged the Corinthians to excel in the grace of giving. Paul says, when he comes, watch, he's going to come as a fixer-upper of things. To put it plainly, he's going to fix you up. Who needs fixing up? Huh? No, Paul says, this guy when he comes, he's not coming for a healing crusade. He's not coming for an apostolic school of ministry. I'm sending Titus to you. And when Titus is finished with you, Corinthians, the grace to give is going to be so complete in you, you're going to give like these Macedonians. Everyone say, complete grace. I'll explain this more. This is a powerful, powerful passage. If I started now, we're going to be here for the next hour, right? Please come back on Wednesday to unpack this verse. All I'm saying, there was something, if something is incomplete, which well, is complete, so it must be incomplete. There was a deficient expression of the grace of God in the Corinthians. And Paul says, Titus, when he comes, will fix everything up. He will sort you out, right? He will fix it up. Verse 7. As you are bound in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you are bound in what? In this grace also. What grace is he talking about here? The grace to give. Come on, when you read this, who's saying in your heart, Lord, complete my grace of giving. Bring it to fullness in me. Uh, bring me to completeness so that whenever I operate financially, it will never be me. It will be a completed segment of the grace of God uh, given to me. And then, two verses down. Okay, next verse. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Okay, he's using others like the Macedonians to provoke them. Then he says this. Oh, guys, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone say, you know. He says, you know grace that's in Jesus. Why? How? That although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Remember he died on the cross, I told you? How did he taste death? 
by grace empowered him to do that. This verse says, he was rich for your sake, he became poor. Remember I said true gracious giving has the other as the primary beneficiary. And it's got no, grace has got no problem inconveniencing itself to convenience another. He was rich, he became poor that others might become rich. Right? And when you give like that, you're not lessening or diminishing or, 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 or reducing your state. You are actually giving out from the realm of spirit and um, it will come back to you via more grace. Now he spends the whole of chapter 8, which we won't go to now, and the whole of chapter 9 on grace and giving. Everyone say 8-9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though we were rich yet for your sake, became poor. My other favorite grace scripture is 9.8. Easy to remember, 8.9 and 9.8. I told you this before. 9.8 says, the next chapter, he carries on and he says this. And God is able to make what? All grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in all things, you will have an abundance for what? For? For every good work. What happens is, he's talking to the Corinthians to activate their faith to give more. But he says, you Corinthians, you are so, you excel in words of knowledge. Remember in Corinthians, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And he said to the Corinthians, you come second to none. Prophecy, tongues, interpretation, healing, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, all the gifts. He says, you guys... Or at the fourth, the Greek word is literally, it means at the forefront of things. You come second to none, you're at the forefront. So he says, as you abound in all of those things, see to it that you abound in this grace also. Oh, by the way, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Come on, repeat this after me. The grace of our Lord Jesus. And how did he define it? It's rich, it becomes poor to enrich others. Say it with me again. The grace of our Lord Jesus. So what does Paul, when he ends off 2 Corinthians, how does he bless the church? 2 Corinthians 13, 14, quickly. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. You know, sometimes he would just say, and peace and grace be with you all. But to the Corinthians, what did he say to this group? He said specifically, the grace of what? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what else from God the Father? The love of the Father. What was the biggest two problems in Corinth? No love and no grace. He spends 1 Corinthians 13. He tells them what love is. And love is kind. Love is patient. He says, you got all these gifts, but I show you a more excellent way. He says, master your love. And, you know, you know I like to say it like this. He spends one chapter on love but two chapters on giving and finance. One chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, two chapters on finance and grace, 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 to address deficiencies in the house. Listen to me, church. Why is God speaking like this to us today? God wants to complete our grace of giving. Never again will you ever say, I do not have enough. You will always say, Mammon, I hate you. Whenever you give, say within your spirit, Mammon, you evil principality working for Satan, I hate you. I will not bow to your pressure that you're bringing to bear on my finances. I love the other master, God my Father. If I incline my heart to obey the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we know is a grace that Although it's rich, it knows how to diminish itself to make others rich. But I say to you, in its diminishment, it's never lessened. Grace that gives to, to enrich others by reducing itself is never reduced. Never reduced. God is not a man that he should lie. Things will come back to you one way or another. Right? So is Paul very deliberate here? He says, hey, you know, churches use this as a... Yes, it's fine to use it, pronounce it benediction. Oh, the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. It's fine, but...
But in context, he said it to a church that lacked two things. Grace to give and a love unconditional. Yeah? I believe in this church. The grace of God is going to be complete. I have so much to share. There's like 20 pages here on this topic. Tell your neighbor, you better come back on Wednesday. <laughs> I feel like I leave this thing hanging. I know you have already enough to chew on. But uh, there's so many other scriptures that link the two. I say to you now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In context, it's a grace that knows how to give. May the love of God, and later on I will share that, how love is a great give, uh, a prompter for giving. Do you know, grace activates giving. And once the giving takes place, giving recruits more grace. Right? 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace. Uh, this seems like a vicious cycle. Do you know what, when I gave Sister Giles and I emptied my wallet, guess what I positioned myself for? More grace. God is not a man that you should lie. I want to encourage you to be faithful. To be faithful. God never forgets your faithfulness. If not now, later he will reward you. Psalm 20 says, uh, I will remember your offerings. The offerings of Cornelius, he says, I will always hold them up as a memorial before me. And I want to encourage you uh, to really harness the power of the grace of God. You see, some of you are sitting there and say again, I ran off. Whew, I really want to. All I'm saying is, just incline your mind to it. At least say yes. At least start the process. And I guarantee you, the grace of God will attend you. Amen. I pray that we all be complete in giving. This grace, this Titus, has been sent to you to complete. Amen. This grace within you. The gracious work of, of giving. Don't count the rands and cents. I have so many other sort of uh, case studies from the scripture to demonstrate this, but we'll continue on Wednesday. I want you just to pray that we can observe the table of the Lord because this is the table of grace, not so? Table of grace. But before we do that, lift your hands to the Lord. I'm going to pray a prayer of impartation. Amen. Again, I've taught extensively on the culture of impartation. There's 12 sermons on a CD. The latest CD is on the desk there. The past three months we've taught on how does impartation work. Impartation can work with a verbal declaration over you, which I'm going to do now. So everyone lift up your hands to the Lord. Come on, lift up your hands to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. According to your faith, so be it unto you. Father, I thank you for your word. We heard much. And it resonates with our spirits. Today we come to you as a church, as a corporate group of people. And I ask that according to your word, we would be a house of grace. A house full with grace. A house from which giving could be some of the most greatest expressions in the city of Durban. We don't look to our natural context when we ask for these things. Because given natural things, we would be limited. Today we lift up our hands to you to ask of you to give us an added measure of your grace. Holy Spirit, come now and deposit by faith into the hearts and lives of every person a new capacity to give, not just financially, of their time, their talents, their gifts, and their abilities that you have given to them in a brand new way. Church, receive this grace now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive it by faith. Receive it by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose grace we appeal to. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you all. A grace that knows how to impoverish itself to enrich others, but is never diminished by what it gave. Because Lord, when you gave your life,
you reaped a whole group of sons. One son gave his life so that the father could have multitudes of sons all over the year. Thank you for the quantums and qualities of the harvest that will be reaped, God. We ask with our hands lifted up, increase our grace. We ask this sincerely. God, we don't want to be dramatic about this, but we are very sincere this morning. Left to ourselves, we're going to fail in this. But by your grace, we will, we will do it. Your commandments are not burdensome. But by your grace, we are able to obey. So we receive it by faith now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.